The Brood 10 podcasts made possible by support from Mount St. Joseph University School of Behavioral and Natural Sciences, cultivating an understanding and appreciation of the creative and critical nature of scientific thought. Climb higher at the Mount. Learn more at msj.edu. Welcome back to the Brood 10 Cicada podcast from Cincinnati Public Radio. I'm WVXU reporter Corey Sharber. Due to the long gaps of time between periodical emergences of insects like cicadas, their entomological study can be a bit like a relay race of researchers passing the baton from one generation to the next, building on each other's work. Once again, I'm joined by Dean of Behavioral and Natural Sciences, as well as a professor in the Department of Biology at Mount St. Joseph University right here in Cincinnati, and PhD of Entomology, Dr. Gene Kritsky. This week, he's ready to walk me through some of those pioneers of early periodical cicada research and how their early uses of crowdsourced research influenced his Cicada Fari app being used to track the Brood 10 emergence today. This is Corey Sharper with Cincinnati Public Radio back in Studio B today with Dr. Gene Kriske. Gene, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well this week. Great. I uh, have been looking forward to talking about cicadas with you again. I know we've been doing this for the past few weeks. Yes. And, of course, part of your job has been researching cicadas, you know, all throughout different times. Of, I mean, we even talked last time about how, you know, how they first emerged on the planet and in all the different types of species that have resulted from it. Um, what, you know, you obviously have an interesting career. But who was the first person to really start to look into cicadas and and research them like you do today? Well, probably the, the, the first individual to really give them the justice the, the, that they deserved was uh, Paul Dudley in Massachusetts. He eventually served on the Massachusetts Supreme Court, but he uh, witnessed the 1699 emergence of, brood, of what we now call Brood 11 and was just amazed by it. And he then witnessed the 1766 emergence and uh, uh, wrote up a manuscript for this and didn't quite think he had it all right. So he decided to wait another 17 years. <laughs> and so he uh, really got into detail describing aspects of the feeding, the egg laying and so on. Uh, his, uh, his paper was never published by the Royal Society. Uh, I was able to get, uh, get a copy of the manuscript from the American Philosophical Society and published that in my my first cicada book, uh, Periodical Cicadas of the Plague and the Puzzle. Uh, but um, the uh, that he was the first. But that was very quickly followed. He was in New England. Uh, we have other individuals that come into play uh, very quickly. Uh, John Bartram, uh, who was a, a botanist uh, and witnessed the uh, uh, 1732 and 1749 emergence of Brood 10. Uh, he was considered by the a number of people in England as the greatest botanist in North America. And... Um, so he he didn't he basically recorded what was going on in general, but uh, it was a visitor to him in 1749, Pere Calm, who probably did really good work describing all the nuances of an emergence as well. I wanted to circle back to Dudley because you said he he saw these bu- bugs emerge and he was just so fascinated by them. But when he was writing his manuscript, he wanted to make sure he got it right. So he waited 17 years, like exactly, is that correct? That is correct. It, so what happened when he sent his, his his manuscript to London? Like, did they just sit on it and wait or did uh, they just... The, paper, the, the manuscript was read at a meeting and uh, created a little bit of a ruckus because uh, uh, they felt he had confused uh, the term locus 
and cicadas. So what he thought, he called these things locusts. And in reality, what he was describing was a cicada, which was known from, from Greece and parts of Europe. So the people of the Royal Society knew he'd made this mistake. And that's part of the, the give and take of the correspondence that occurred. And ultimately, his paper was not published. We did mention some of the other other individuals that were studying cicadas during this time. Like, but were you know, could we talk more about who were some of his contemporaries that that were, you know, early in the research process for cicadas? Certainly, well, the most notable would be Pericolm, and he was a disciple of Linnaeus who came over to North America to collect plants and insects and so on for Linnaeus. In fact, it was it was Calm who collected periodical cicadas, and took them back to Linnaeus. And Linnaeus in Sweden describes the first species, cicada septendecim. Hmm. He recognized off the bat that it was indeed a cicada, not a locust. He was not biased by that. And the, the term that uh, in, in, in Colm's paper, he actually makes the comment that these strange insects, the English call them locusts, the Swedes call them a grasshopper, and they should more correctly be called cicada. And so there was uh, people were using terms quite mixed in that in at that time, and especially in that uh, part of the world, which is Philadelphia. <laughs> and uh, but uh, Calm went out and watched these things. He, he was he walked through a woods, and then the next day the cicadas were coming out like crazy, and and he said they weren't there the day before, and so he witnessed all that, and then. Uh, described a lot of the activity that's going on with the cicadas and how they, how long it took them to sing and things like that. And then he moved north and the cicadas weren't there. So he realized that they had limited distribution and things like that. And that's the start of, uh, of uh, our understanding. So his paper uh, published in the 17, late 1700s uh, was one of the first to really go into cicada biology. What is it, you know, with, with your research, how does it impact what you're trying to look at when you know, the early researchers were, were using incorrect terms. Like, does that, does that throw, you know, does that throw you off balance a little bit when you're looking into things? Well, not that I, now that I know what they were calling it, I can, but, uh, mm. for example, of a new, uh, if you use the, uh, library of Congress chronicling America website and you want to go back to the late 18th century to try to find information about cicadas, you learn pretty quickly. You got to put in the word locust, <laughs> <laughs> and then you can use the chart about what years the the cicadas were emerging. Put that year in, put in locusts, and you get one of two things: either stores on Locust Street, <laughs> or or you get information about the locust, the, the periodical cicadas coming out. And but you talk they, 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 by that description, you know they're talking about cicadas. So, so we're talking about you know people are, like were misusing definitions; they were saying the exact wrong things, but. What about research that may have like just been missed or or certain researchers that that went down as maybe unsung heroes during this time? Could you go over that? Certainly. The probably the, the best unknown cicada researcher was Gideon B. Smith of Baltimore. Uh, Smith was a medical doctor who also uh, worked in uh, the publishing field for agricultural newspapers. And uh, he met Nathaniel Potter. Potter was another medical doctor who experienced the emergence of 1783. And he had planned to do some research on it, but his patient load got in the way. So he thought, okay, I'll do it in 1800. Same thing. <laughs> 1817, it happened again. So finally now in 1834, he decided, now he's getting an advanced age, if I'm going to do anything on cicadas, I've got to get help. And he meets Gideon B. Smith. And uh, the two of them, do a lot of observation, correspondence, and what have you, work up all the details of uh, the emergence of 1834. And in 1839, 
mostly written by Smith, although Potter was the only author of the name, the first standalone publication on periodical skaters. Smith uh, uh, continues working with Potter, and Potter dies early in the 1840s. And so in 1843, Smith takes over, and he starts crowdsourcing in the 1840s. What he would do is he'd write a little letter to the editor and send it to a newspaper. They'd publish it, and the letter would say something, I'm expecting the locust to emerge in your part, your part of the state. I'd appreciate it if your readers would contact me and let me know what they see. And he did that every year. And by the time he died in 1867... He had documented not the full distribution, but every known brood of periodical cicadas. And to show you how serious he was, he was informed in 1845 by a physician in Mississippi that they had 13-year cicadas, which were totally unknown at that time. And you could, you could see based on what he's been writing that he's not quite sure of it. But by 1858, 13 years later, he knows there are 13-year cicadas. But to verify it. He sends a letter to the newspaper down in, uh, in uh, Mississippi, and it says, uh, for those people who send me notice of the cicadas, I'll be glad to return their stamps to them. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, wanted to verify that. But so he, he actually discovered the 13-year uh, uh, the Well, the, the Dr. Ferris uh, in Mississippi was the one who noticed it first, but he was able to document that as well as two other broods of 13-year cicadas by the uh, end of the 1850s. Speaking, let's step away like from like the cicadas itself and more look at looking at the research. Like when you're talking about, you know, in the 1840s, we have a researcher that's actively crowdsourcing, trying to get people to, you know, take part in his research. Like what's the, what is the importance of crowdsourcing in your research as well as just research today? Well, it's, I feel like I'm part of the, the continuum from Gideon Smith. Here's a guy that's collecting letters and postcards. Uh, in the uh, in 1902, the USDA put out 15,000 letters to try to map out Brood 10. And I, I did. I used a hotline at the Mount in 1987, emails in 2004, and now I'm using a smartphone. And uh, just today, our 43rd thousandth download of my app came in, mm. and it's like this is way bigger than we're seeing. And so it's it's. As technology is changing, we're getting more and more ways of monitoring this and uh, quite excited to see what will happen this year. Well, does that make it easier or harder to do research? I mean, now, I mean, like you said, 34,000 people have downloaded this. That gives a lot of people, you know, access to to aid in your research. But that also means there's a lot more info you have to go through. Considerably. We're expecting, yeah, we're <laughs> we're going to have between fifty and 60,000 photographs if, if the projections hold up. Mm. But we're, we're, we're adding a thousand, uh, four, last night was 1400 downloads in one day. We talked about uh, Smith, you know, kind of basically kind of paving the way for you in your crowdsourcing work, but, um, he passed away in 1867. Um, you know, and obviously he left a vast amount of research left to still needs, that still needs to be carried out because cicadas aren't just going to stop just because one person goes down. So who, who stepped in to pick up the void to, to, continue that research for him in his absence. Well, the most uh, colorful character of the group was a man by the name of, uh, of um, uh, Charles Valentine Riley. He was uh, the first state entomologist of Missouri. He was the second national entomologist. And uh, working with uh, Benjamin Walsh, who they published what uh, the, the newspaper magazine called American Entomologist. And 
that started in 1968 and they had a number of articles about periodical cicadas and so on. So Riley was, was part of that, that continuation. And he actually thought he had discovered the 13-year cicadas until another entomologist <laughs> who knew about what, what Smith had been doing corrected him and then did arrange for him to get a copy of uh, uh, Smith's unpublished manuscript which is still missing to this day. We know that it was in somebody's hands at the USDA in 1907, but we have not seen anything of that since. And, uh, and so uh, I'm hoping that uh, maybe somebody in Baltimore has a, in their attic a file <laughs> from their great, great, great grandfather <laughs> of this lost manuscript. I'd love to see this. I think I've, I've been able to find about 70% of it, but uh, it's, uh, it's quite a detective work. You know, speaking of those gaps, I mean, especially, you know, we were talking about, you know, Mr. Smith and his research, you know, what can listeners in Baltimore do to help fill in all those historical gaps regarding it? It's a, uh, it's what I do. It's, it's, I'm constantly reaching out to areas, so trying to find more about these individuals. The only thing we have of Smith that's in his hand is a letter he wrote in the uh, uh, 1830s uh, that he, he actually signed. So I have his autograph. <laughs> But, and uh, we have, if, uh, but even though his manuscript was unpublished, it wasn't until going through old newspapers that we discovered he wasn't publishing in major journals. He did publish one paper in Scientific American and a couple notices in, in uh, Prairie Farmer. He was publishing in newspapers. And with Chronically America, we were able to find, you know, here's 2,500 words on periodical cicadas in 1851. And if you put all these things together, it amounts to almost 7,500 words, which is what we think was about 70% of what his final manuscript was. Well, at least, uh, at least with this podcast, this is definitely going to go on throughout time. And hopefully we, we have at least a backup of it in case for some reason someone decides to nuke WVXU.org. But until next time, Gene, I really appreciate you speaking with me today about, about the, all these early researchers. And I can't wait to talk to you again next week. Me too. Thank you. Remember, I'm not the only one that can ask Gene questions. You can also ask questions or leave us comments on the Brood 10 podcast by emailing us at broodx, as in the Roman numeral 10, at wvxu.org. One of those questions comes from Crystal in Cincinnati. She says here, quote, I would be very interested to know if cicadas are more concentrated in specific conditions or communities that's near water, trees, parks, open spaces, etc. I ask because some conditions are more accommodating to environmental changes than others. For example, I lived in the North Avondale Walnut Hills area for decades and never experienced mosquitoes. I moved to the West End and I need a weekly mosquito service and treatment. Goodness gracious, that comes from Crystal in Cincinnati. I hope you... She's got enough bug spray to last. Um, yeah, Gene, like, tell us, like, you know, do the environment, you know, are cicadas more concentrated in specific conditions or communities? That's a great question, Crystal. Uh, first of all, cicadas suck on tree roots. Therefore, you're going to, you're not going to find cicadas in like an open field, like a baseball field or a soccer field. They're not going to be emerging there. So you're going to find communities where there's uh, good established woods, in many cases for several years. If you go to an area that might be have had all the trees planted within the last 17 years, they're not going to have any cicadas emerge under those trees because nothing was laid in those trees. Uh, but the if those woods are within a mile of a major cicada emergence, then you can have cicadas flying in and you might get egg laying, which means you're going to get a much better uh, emergence in 17 years in the future. And again, we want to thank Crystal and Cincinnati for submitting us that question. You can, again, also submit us any questions or comments you have on the Brew Podcast at broodx at wvxu.org.
Thanks for listening to the Brew 10 Cicada Podcast. Our thanks, as always, to our guest expert, Gene Kritsky. You can learn more and assist Gene's cicada mapping efforts by visiting cicadasafari.org. Be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast. This podcast is produced by the always buzzing Josh Elstro with additional support and web assistance from Kevin Reynolds and Jim Nolan. For Cincinnati Public Radio, I'm Corey Sharber, and you've been listening to the Brew 10 Cicada Podcast. We'll talk again next week. Mm-hmm.